Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Popular Antiquarian, the podcast about exploring the past to escape the nightmare of the now. Each episode, I, Hieronymus J. Doom, look at something created before the turn of the millennium and attempt to explain why it merits closer examination than any of Michael Bay's Transformers movies. This episode, we are looking at The Eye of Argon, a fantasy novelette written by Jim Tice in 1970 and published in the 10th issue of OzFan, the journal of the US Ozark Science Fiction Association. I wanted to include something in this first season which came from outside the traditional world of publishing, something made by an amateur. I'm very keen on amateur creativity. It's something that has become very prominent on the internet in the 21st century, with sites like Archive of Our Own and DeviantArt hosting an amazing array of work by creators ranging from the supremely talented to the utterly ham-fisted. But of course, the roots of fan-created media run much deeper and earlier than that. Fans have probably always created their own work in response to the things they love, but for the concept to become its own separate form of creativity, there needed to be two things, at least in my opinion. The first is some kind of intellectual ownership of intellectual property, and the second is the development of publishing structures which support and monetize that intellectual property. For me, at least, fan-created work needs to exist outside or in some kind of tension with those structures and to be pursued as an end in itself rather than as a form of remunerative labor. The Eye of Argon was not going to be the original subject of this episode. I had planned to talk about a moment in time, one of the earliest recorded pieces of homoerotic fan fiction featuring characters from the TV series Star Trek. However, it turns out that reading about Captain Kirk and Spock having sex weirds me out on a deep level. I think it's because I encountered those characters as a child, and reading about their imaginary sex lives feels like reading about my parents having sex. I could not deal with it. So instead, I turned to The Eye of Argon, an obvious Conan pastiche written by a teenager, which might be able to claim to be the worst work of fiction ever to emerge from fandom. I have read a lot of bad writers, I have read a lot of bad fan fiction, I have watched at least one low-budget movie a week for the past three years, I have an enduring fascination and appreciation for those who create at the margins. I can say, based on extensive personal experience, that The Eye of Argon is the single most incompetent work of creativity I have ever come across. Yet, I'm not doing this podcast purely to poke fun at Jim Tice and his misbegotten creation, but to try and celebrate something that has outlived its original creator and which has brought me, admittedly, a very perverse kind of joy. Jim Tice was only 16 when he wrote The Eye of Argon, and it remains his sole work to be preserved in the historical record. Tice was born in 1953 and is believed to have died in 2002 at the age of 48. The only other record of his existence is an interview he did in 1984 when his work was already infamous. In it, he expressed regret at having written the story, hurt at its ongoing mockery, and stated that he would never write again. Despite that, his work has endured, preserved and celebrated with a curious mixture of joy and contempt. There is a game sometimes played at science fiction conventions where people take turns 
to read the Eye of Argon out loud, each reader's turn ending when they can no longer restrain the impulse to laugh. It's not the kind of immortality any of us might wish for, but it is immortality of a sort. By means of a comparison, I looked at the top-selling books of 1970 in the US, and while there are many whose appeal has endured, the single best-selling book was Love Story by Eric Segal, an adaptation of the screenplay for a romantic drama film released that same year. Not a title that's widely read in this day and age, and certainly not one that comes up regularly in conversation. It's doubtless got its fans, and I can see that it does still sell today, but it certainly isn't a legend. The Eye of Argon is a legend, passed around fandom for many years, photocopies handed from hand to hand being retyped from time to time when the existing copies began to show the strain of being reproduced so many times. The ending was thought to be lost for a long time, the original version of the story being the one from which all other versions were copied, lacking the final page of the zine from which it was taken. In 2004, an intrepid sleuth by the name of Gene Bundy discovered that a copy of the fanzine was held in the Jack Williamson SF Library at Eastern New Mexico University. This was duly photocopied, enabling the complete story of the Eye of Argon to be told. A second copy of the original zine was found by Sandra Bond in a large collection of fanzines owned by Ian Maul in 2009, and this copy has been scanned and made available so that it can be experienced in its original form, untainted by the accidental corrections that plagued the existing text versions circulating on the internet. There's something very heartening in knowing that multiple copies of an obscure and unremarked fanzine have survived within the historical record, and that some effort has been made to preserve them digitally for future generations. So much for the Eye of Argon as a historical artefact. What about the Eye of Argon as a work of prose? How bad can it actually be? The answer is much worse, but also much better than you could possibly imagine. The Eye of Argon is a pastiche of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. A mighty Thud barbarian named Grignir gets into a series of fights, only to be taken captive and imprisoned in a dungeon. He manages to escape, and in doing so comes across a dark ritual where a beautiful woman is being sacrificed to an elder god. He rescues the woman, purloins a gem from the idol. As they flee the dungeon, the gem comes to life, turning into a hideous leech monster. The leech monster dies, and Grignir and his new lady friend ride off into the sunset. There's actually nothing wrong with that as a plot outline. Even by 1970, it was scarcely original, but if you're trying to write a pulp adventure in the style of the 20s and 30s, that's a perfectly adequate bedrock from which to begin. You might criticise it for its rather tired gender stereotypes, with the hugely muscled barbarian rescuing a girl whose sole function is to be rescued by hugely muscled barbarians, but if it were executed competently, you'd have a serviceable slice of retro pulpy fun. Not the sort of thing that anyone would have been queuing up to publish by 1970, but a pleasant exercise in nostalgia, eminently suited to fanzines. The problem is that Jim Tice doesn't really know how words work. He wields his words like a sock full of wet mints. He has an amazing knack for choosing precisely the wrong word for the situation. If you were to select an adverb to add to the word tossing in the phrase... 
his shock of fiery red hair tossing in the humid air, I very much doubt that you'd settle on the word robustly. Nor would many people, when reaching for a word with which to describe a warrior's state of mind in the midst of battle, come to land on the word enthused. Yet these are the two words Tice selected for the following sentence. The enthused barbarian swivelled about, his shock of fiery red hair tossing robustly in the humid air currents. Even the use of air currents instead of simply air feels clunky and clumsy. Often it seems that Tice simply doesn't know what words mean, such as when he describes a woman having stringy orchid twines of hair swaying gracefully over her lithe opaque nose. Opaque isn't technically wrong in this situation, though it's an incredibly odd thing to focus on given that the vast majority of noses aren't transparent. Equally, you could theoretically describe someone's nose as being lithe, in the sense of being thin, supple and graceful, but it's a very odd word to choose, especially as an example of her attractive qualities. Lithe tends to imply a sense of movement, and I don't know about you, but I'm not massively drawn to people with noses that are supple. I am drawn to people with noses that are opaque, though, so he has got me banged to rights there. Almost every sentence has this odd quality of wrongness. Sometimes he will include terms that are almost antonyms in the same sentence. A character's face is described as becoming pastily lit up to a lustrous cherry red radiance. The idol that features heavily in the climactic sequence of the story has oblong ears which tapered off to thin hollow points. It's the kind of prose that would be indescribably difficult to write on purpose and almost impossible to sustain for the entire length of a story. At times, reading it, you feel like you might be experiencing some kind of neurological event. There's a form of brain damage called Wernicke's aphasia, where the person can produce utterances which have the grammatical form of sentences, but lack any coherent meaning. And that's sometimes the feeling you get from Tice's more improbably tortured sentences. When you read something like, the rampaging stead of death, having taken Grignir for the moment, left the barbarian free for the exploitation of his other perusials, the meaning is utterly mysterious. It would be fascinating to apply William Burroughs' cut-up technique to the text to see if any new meaning could be formed by a random sorting of the available words. Perhaps my favourite examples of Tice's bizarre turn of phrase come when he tries to describe sexual contact. When Grignir takes a beautiful woman in his arms, we are told that he crushes her sagging nipples to his yearning chest. Later, we are told that he kisses the same woman, smothering her trim, delicate lips between the coursing protrusions of his reeking maw. It reads like a nightmare vision of human bodies being forced together in a sickening embrace of mutual disgust. But I have to assume that Tice intended these scenes to have an erotic charge. Certainly, Carthena doesn't seem to be put off by Grignir's coursing protrusions or his reeking maw. There are phrases which are more or less lifted from the works of pop writers, in particular Robert E. Howard. Howard is an easy writer to pastiche. Sprinkle your text with references to abyssal gulfs of night, mighty thews and pantherish leaps, and you're most of the way there. 
He's an incredibly hard writer to actually imitate, though. Although he makes use of similar imagery throughout his stories, Howard is actually a gifted prose stylist, with a knack for focusing on the key features of a scene and bringing them vividly to life, with liberal use of adverbs and adjectives. He wrote poetry as well as prose, and his sentences often have a poetic metre, and it was probably writing poetry which helped develop his broad and idiosyncratic working lexicon. He was also writing from the heart. Conan and his other brawling heroes were deeply informed by his pessimism about the modern world, his disdain for the hypocrisy of civilization, and the almost sexual way he idolised men of power and action. There was also his abhorrently racial view of the changing tide of history, which is one element of his work that no one should be trying to emulate in 2023, or even in 1970, or even in 1935. What Tice has spotted is that Howard uses a lot of modifiers and a wide lexicon, and that is what he's trying to bring to his own work. You could say that Tice has actually engaged well with his source material in a sense. Not everyone who reads and admires a writer or a school of writers notices the intricate mechanics of their craft. Unfortunately, Tice is completely incapable of reproducing Howard's style, except in the most bizarre ways. So we get various words he's vaguely remembered from different sources, often misspelled, almost always misapplied. He loads the sentences with adverbs and adjectives that appear to have fallen off the back of a lorry, and sprinkles in some imagery stolen wholesale from his idols. The result is terrible, but it's also delightful. No one else writes like Jim Tice. He's a genuine original, and his work brings me so much joy. For all the many issues with the way he uses words, there's a clear enthusiasm for the source material showing through. He's a world away from the endless parade of cynical hacks churning out sword and sorcery stories for a quick buck. I recently read Lynn Carter's Wizard of Lemuria, a crude and lifeless Conan pastiche that has its hero captured and thrown into a dungeon cell no less than three times in the course of a very short narrative. Lynn Carter would later work with L. Sprague de Camp, completing unpublished Howard fragments, but that's a story for another day. Wizard of Lemuria feels flat, almost moribund, and you could say the same thing about Harry Kuttner's Elac of Atlantis stories. There's nothing lifeless about Jim Tice's work. It's surreal, to the point of impenetrability, but you can see that it comes from a place of love. The single worst thing a piece of media can be is boring. The Eye of Argon is certainly not boring. Once read, it will linger long in the memory, and that is a glorious thing. There are even a few moments that hint with time and some tuition, Tice might have been able to produce something less demented. Take the example of the following passage in which Grignir muses woefully on his confinement to a dark dungeon beneath the palace. Death promised an infinity of peace, not the finite misery of an inactive life of confined torture, forever concealed from the life-bearing shafts of the beloved rising sun. The orb that had been before taken for granted yet now cherished above all else. To be forever refused further glimpses of the snow-capped summits of the land of his birth, never again to witness the thrill of plundering unexplored lands beyond the crest of a bleeding horizon, and perhaps worst of all, the denial to ever encompass the lustful excitement 
of caressing the naked curves of the body of a trim young wench. It's not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but it shows an awareness of the character's background and motivations. It hammers home that confinement for a barbarian is worse than death, and provides at least a modicum of characterization. The tragedy of Jim Tice isn't that he wrote a bad story, it's that he wrote a bad story and people still remember it, and that's his main legacy, at least outside the sphere of his friends and family. Jim Tice gave up writing thanks to the mockery that this piece engendered, and that's sad because anyone giving up on a creative outlet is sad regardless of whether or not they have any talent. I am an objectively terrible musician, but I don't let that stop me. Would I feel the same way if my work was regularly held up as an object of ridicule? In my case, I'd like to think that I wouldn't let it get to me. I'm pretty thick-skinned about the things I put out into the world. I've always been very lucky in the sense that I've never been overly worried about what other people think of me and my work. Also, I've seen what happens to creators who can't handle criticism, and I know it's not pretty. One of the benefits of being in your mid-40s is not worrying overly about the opinions of people who don't know you. If I posted some fanfic at the age of 16 and it had turned into a meme that was going to outlive me, then maybe I'd feel different. Happily, my own foray into youthful fanfiction is entirely lost to history, having been on a floppy disk that became corrupt, thus saving the world from my take on the law of 1994 action horror movie The Crow. No one is saying that we lost a Hemingway when Jim Tice decided not to write anymore. At worst, we lost a Dean Koontz or a Dan Brown. Those are both terrible writers, and I feel comfortable saying that because they've both made a successful career out of being terrible writers. The world needs Dean Koontz's and Dan Brown's, apparently. Perhaps the writer Jim Tice is closest to is the husband and wife team of Robert and Patricia Fanthorpe, who will definitely get their own episode at some point, since they provide an interesting answer to the related question, just how bad can you be at the craft of writing and still get published not once but many times over? However, the slightly sad overtones of The Eye of Argon shouldn't blind people to the fact that this story has brought joy to many, many people over the years and is still being circulated, analysed and enjoyed to this day. There are physical copies available to buy on the internet, suggesting that there's people who want not merely to experience Jim Tice's hallucinatory butchering of the English language, but to own it as well. There are very few writers of fan fiction who can say that their work has endured for 50 years, and that's something to be celebrated even if Tice didn't see it that way. He lived a tragically short life, but he left a mark on the world beyond the sphere of his family and friends, and that's never going to be anything other than cool to me. The phrase, so bad it's good, gets tossed around a lot, but the Eye of Argon is one of the few things that truly lives up to that designation. I'm indebted to the work of David Langford, the tireless historian of all things science fiction, who has gathered almost all of the scanty available information about the Eye of Argon and made it available on his website, along with a facsimile of the original fanzine edition. Searching for Ansible and Eye of Argon should point you in the right direction. That's it for this season of Popular Antiquarian. Will there be a second? Yes, there will be. I'm going to take a short break, but then I'll be back with the first episode of Season 2. 
We'll be moving on to a bi-weekly release schedule to make this podcast easier to produce alongside my other podcast, Fantastic Fights. I'm also anticipating season two being longer than six episodes. I haven't talked about funding Popular Antiquarian, but this season was written as a thank you to all the people who have been generous enough to support my work on Patreon. It's their support that has made this possible and freely available. If you like the show, please do consider backing at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. It keeps my shows on the air and completely ad-free and sponsorship-free, and that will continue to be the case forever. I will never take ads. I will never do sponsorship. I don't gate any of my podcasts behind a paywall. I make them, and I put them out into the world and offer people the chance to support me. Anyone who backs me on Patreon receives a bunch of gaming material, including three adventure game books and three small but complete role-playing games. I'm also working on a new game book as we speak. In addition, anyone who supports me to the value of five quid or more a month will get to pick a piece of media to be covered in a series of bonus episodes, so there's a little added incentive, if you like. If you can't support me financially, which is completely fine, then maybe consider leaving a review or telling someone about this podcast. I'm not on social media for mental health reasons, so word of mouth is incredibly important for my projects. Regardless of whether you're in a position to help me out, I'm enormously appreciative that you've chosen to spend some of your free time in my company. It's a privilege to be able to do this kind of thing, it really is. If you want to get in touch with me, especially if you've got something you'd like me to cover, then you can email me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you to my patrons for their support. Take care, and I'll see you soon.